I'm Justin Myers, and this is an exclusive preview of The Last Romeo for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon. I felt disoriented and a bit peaky. How was it possible I was here, right now, like this? That weird feeling when you arrive somewhere on holiday after a long flight, and you're unpacking and suddenly realise only this morning you were standing in your dingy kitchen in West London, worrying about the taxi being late, and now, here you are, thousands of miles away in a hotel room, realising your phone charger is back in that dingy kitchen. Unsettled, displaced, exposed, yet superhuman, because however you got there, you made it happen yourself. In an unfamiliar lounge of an unfamiliar flat, surrounded by boxes and bags containing the life of the stranger I was ten minutes ago, listening to the sound of the supposed love of my life plodding down the six flights of stairs that would take him outside and away from me, forever, my life began. Breaking up with Adam would have been easier if it had been over something headline-grabbing and dramatic, but he'd never played away from home, wasn't embezzling my savings account, and never laid a finger on me. Adam's crimes were stealthy, his talent was wrong-footing me, or trying to fix me up to be less of an inconvenience. His love for me felt like a series of favours, with the repayment on each one becoming harder and harder to meet every time. I had it all worked out the day I finally made up my mind. Many a time, after an argument about money, or his insistence I order something different from him in a restaurant, I'd fantasise about what I'd say if I ever decided to leave. Great long speeches, full of adjectives I've never got to use in real life to explain why I couldn't do it anymore. Tears, perhaps, or crockery shattering against a wall. I considered a trip to Ikea to make sure we had plenty to spare. It would beg my forgiveness, I decided, cling to my ankles as I strode majestically out of the flat. He would implore me to reconsider, tell me he'd change, and I'd half-smile, put my index finger to my lips, bid him hush, and say evenly, go fuck yourself, Adam. The reality was different. It was Tuesday. He clattered in, late, from his gym class, and kicked off his shoes, slumping into a chair. Usually, Adam didn't talk after he'd been to the gym. He liked to eat whatever I cooked in silence either with headphones in or glued to his laptop. The dead hour, I called it, when I'd sit and wait for him to come round and notice me again, like a coquettish maid trying to catch her master's eye, and not a 34-year-old man who'd been in this relationship for six long years. Too long. Jupiter years. But tonight, there'd be no dead hour. It would live. He would hear me. I remember the words coming out of my mouth, and being disappointed at how badly they scanned. It wasn't poetic. I stammered like an adolescent giving a presentation in sex education, reddening and nervously scratching my chest, as I usually did whenever a video camera was pointing at me. Adam sat, his eyes bulging, not saying a word, until I got to what I thought was my masterpiece. It's just, we're not going anywhere. We go to the same places, do the same things... Would it be bad form to pour myself a glass of wine before I went on? Probably. And I want to go to other places. I want to, you know, try different things. Walk down streets I've never walked down before. I saw a vain throb in his head. Street. It had sounded amazing in my head, 
brave and powerful, but now it seems crass and melodramatic. By streets you haven't walked down before, do you mean, he bristled, are you seeing someone else? No. It was the last cruel trick of our relationship that I couldn't tell him why I really wanted it to end. He wouldn't understand. It would sound even more foolish. How do you tell someone that despite paying the rent, turning up to weddings beside you, tilting their head just so in your couple selfies, and being to all intents and purposes a great boyfriend, that they actually weren't? His knack for filling me with self-doubt at every turn, with just one look or a carefully chosen word, his dismissiveness of my career, disdain for anything I like to do, gearing our social life toward his own interests, the ceaseless commentary on what I assumed were my little quirks or harmless faults, but were, to Adam, behavioural abnormalities that must be curbed. Nothing went unchecked, ever. How do you explain to someone that you feel owned, insignificant, without making them feel terrible? I knew then, as I watched Adam slowly pour himself a glass of wine, none for me, eternally the Gretchen Wieners, that the easiest way to do this would be to make him think the fault was all mine. Because I didn't actually want Adam to have an epiphany, or beg me for forgiveness, or clutch my ankles. I wanted him to let me go. For all his outward calm, I could tell he was shocked because he downed the wine immediately. James, you're supposed to sip it, not throw it back like you're on an all-inclusive to Magaluf, was always a favourite line of his. And poured another. His eyes were moist, but he didn't look sad. I realised these were tears of anger. Well, he said finally, after another glass of wine was down the hatch and I was done stumbling through my apologies. You'd better move into the spare room. I wasn't expecting him to suggest we flat-shared, so I asked him what he meant. You've got a month, Jim. More than kind under the circumstances. He unbuttoned his shirt and started to walk out of the room. From now on, you're a lodger. Four weeks today, I want you gone. If it's over, it's over. I heard the bathroom door slam and the shower jerk into life. Lodger. Wow. This was cold, even for Adam. How could he be so calculated, so transactional already? And then it dawned on me. Adam obviously thought he'd be the one to end it. He was the catch. He had the cash. He was tall, loaded, handsome and popular, with a huge circle of friends who adored him. His friends had become mine, while I had few of my own, and he had a great future ahead of him. Everybody brushed his faults aside because the idea of him was so attractive, but I rejected it, and I was probably the first person ever to do so. My phone rang, echoing against the bare white walls of my new flat. Someone calling? My phone was strictly for messaging, tweeting, and occasionally writing out panicked articles or correcting mistakes in ones I'd just published before the boss saw. Everyone knew that. It was my best friend, Bella. I wouldn't answer for many, but for her I did. Well? She sounded breathless, nervous. He's just left, actually. You in the new flat? Yes. We were silent for a few seconds. It's fine, I sniffed loudly as my eyes began to water. Oh, Jim, Bella's voice faltered. Was he a dick about it? Do you want me to come and stroke your hair and tell you everything's going to be all right? No, I don't, I whimpered. But I've got a duty-free bottle of Patron crying out to be poured down my throat by a willing volunteer while Celine Dion plays very loudly in the background. Bella laughed. Queen Celine, count me in. 
I've had a shit day and work can go fuck itself tomorrow. You're an icon. I know. Do you want me to bring pyjamas and stay over? Or are you being a special brave boy who can totally do this on your own? I looked around. I listened to the din of the traffic outside. It was starting to get dark. I can do it alone, I said. But, well, bring pyjamas. Just in case. I dug into a box that looked like it might have shot glasses and tumblers in it to prepare for Bella's arrival, unearthing all kinds of treasures and artefacts that I'd hurriedly packed. I remembered when I had decided I couldn't go on, just 29 days earlier, Monday morning. Singing in the shower, the most ridiculous of things. I was just croaking my way through the chorus of Into the Groove, the only song I ever sing in the shower, and soaping what I will call an intimate area. When the door flew open and Adam appeared at the frosted screen, his face angry and contorted like a gargoyle. Are you ever going to get to the middle eight? He spat. I'm late for work. I looked down at my crotch. I'm washing my uh, dick, Boo. Boo, our cutesy pet name for one another, derived of about a hundred previous bastardizations neither of us could remember. We often used it to disarm a potentially explosive situation, but recently it seemed more flammable than ever. I didn't know my singing bothered you. You used to like it. I sensed he was about to say something noxious, but the sight of me naked and pathetic as water bounced off my shoulders stopped him. He took a breath. You sing the same bit over and over. It's fucking annoying, especially when I need to be in here. When Adam wanted the bathroom, he needed it. My own ablutions were nothing but inconvenient whimsy. If I got to the bathroom before him, even if I was doing an early shift, I'd emerge to find him pacing outside like a bad-tempered tiger, waiting to rip my head off. It looked like my turn on the karaoke would have to wait. Without taking my eyes off him, I slowly turned the tap until the water stopped, and with a sponge covering my uh, party zone, I climbed out of the tub, suds drifting to the floor and onto his pyjamas. I didn't reach for my towel, just stalked out of the bathroom in a rush of steam, leaving only wet footprints behind me, my head throbbing with helplessness. And that's when I absolutely knew. Adam had taken my voice away one time too often. I never complained, never explained. I just accepted, smiling beatifically by his side, while the world gazed on adoringly. I'd let it happen over six years, and that was my own fault, but no more. I couldn't love a man who wouldn't let me sing.